HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The Big Food Question is sponsored by Pop Menu, which helps turn first-time guests into regulars for your restaurant. For a limited time, get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash hrn. This episode is brought to you by Nyman Ranch. I'm Paul Willis, a fifth-generation farmer and co-founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company. Learn more about us at nymanranch.com. Welcome to The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Dylan Hoyer, a communications associate and audio producer for Heritage Radio Network. This episode is produced in collaboration with The Counter, a nonprofit, independent, nonpartisan newsroom investigating the forces shaping how and what America eats. Today, we're asking how has a year of remote learning affected childhood nutrition? But this story started with a slightly different question. John Mackey, the founder and I believe chief executive or president of Whole Foods, gave an interview to the New York Times, and he was talking about why he thought that the United States had higher rates of COVID-19 mortality than other developed countries. And he uh, made a provocative statement, which I interrogated in an article, which is basically, does he have a point that the United States, because we eat more poorly and because we are unhealthy compared to other countries, has that impacted COVID-19 mortality? And I talked to a few public health experts about that. Part of what I was told by a public health expert who's actually now since joined Joe Biden's USDA, she was telling me that she wasn't necessarily worried so much about the actual physical health linkages, sort of health and diet being a comorbidity or an exacerbator of COVID-19, but the other way around. How could COVID-19 exacerbate health And how could COVID-19 exacerbate diet-related problems? This is Sam Block, a New York City-based journalist and contributor to The Counter. And she said to me that one thing she was worried about was the fact that during the pandemic, the Agriculture Department, which oversees the National School Lunch Program, had passed a boatload of waivers that had loosened the nutritional requirements on school lunches. And she was worried that there could be a ripple effect there. 
that if we start taking away healthy school lunches from kids at a time when public health has been more compromised than it has been in, say, 100 years, that there could be ripple effects from that. And that's when I started looking into this link between school lunch and health and the pandemic. In our last episode, Kat Johnson spoke to the counter staff writer, Jessica Fu, about the impact of these USDA waivers on school funding. Here's a refresher on what these waivers are. Almost a year ago now, the Agriculture Department, which oversees federal reimbursement for school meals, passed through a huge number of waivers that were intended to make it easier to continue to serve needy kids at a time of immense disruption and economic stress. Our previous episode discussed the waivers that made it possible for schools to serve lunch to all children under 18 for free. But that's only one part of the story. Other waivers allowed schools to distribute meals through new channels by delivering lunches to student homes and community centers or creating pickup sites. But it's not just the logistical waivers that have been put in place to feed kids. USDA also freed schools from these nutritional guidelines. So the USDA started pushing all of these waivers that gave schools permission to request meal pattern exemptions, is what they're called. So that releases them from a requirement to serve whole grains, fruits and vegetables, or to limit calories and sodium. This change to the nutrition guidelines dramatically altered the trajectory that school lunch has been heading in for the past decade. I think many people may have this idea in their head that school lunch is sloppy joes and pizzas and unhealthy food, high in fat. And that may have been the case, but it's certainly been trending in the other direction since the Obama presidency. What these Obama-era changes did was increase the amount of whole grains that are required to be served in a meal that's reimbursed by the federal government. They required a greater diversity of vegetables. They required levels of salt in food to be phased out. And they put limits on saturated fats. And those have had, I won't say profound health impacts because the changes are only a few years old, but already researchers were starting to see positive health outcomes associated with the changes to the school lunch program. The Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010, championed by Michelle Obama, brought school lunch requirements up to speed with the national dietary guidelines the government sets for adults. For a story about how the national dietary guidelines are shaped, check out episode 29 of The Big Food Question. But back to school lunch. The Trump administration chipped away at the Obama-era nutrition standards through various policy initiatives, altering the definition of snacks, increasing acceptable levels of sodium, and lowering the required amounts of whole grains, among other changes. Its most dramatic rollback took place amidst the pandemic. Officially, these waivers are meant to buffer these schools from these supply chain disruptions. Because if you remember a year ago, last March, and even you know in April and May, the world was, I mean, I remember going to the grocery store and the pandemonium in the grocery store. What I heard from a lot of people who worked in schools is that there was the same kind of level of pandemonium and confusion and difficulty for the school lunch providers. So USDA basically just gave them permission to serve not any food they wanted, but something close to it. Because again, the idea is kids are hungry. We need to feed them. A year later, regulations have not tightened around school nutrition. 
One of the things that drew me to the story was this idea that we keep hearing constantly during this pandemic about the rising rates in food insecurity. And at least when I hear the term food insecurity, I tend to think about people who are going hungry. And while that is true, in America, starvation is not as common as unhealthy weight gain. People who are poorer don't typically starve. They instead spend their money on cheaper foods that are denser in calories and fats and salts and other processed foods that we know to be made cheaply available in grocery stores, convenience stores, and the like. Lack of proper nutrition in childhood can have lifelong impacts. In this light, school lunch can be viewed as a powerful public health intervention. 67% of kids who are obese at five years old will be obese at 50, according to an off-sited longitudinal study. And 90% of obese adolescents will stay obese as adults. And that increases their risk for conditions like diabetes and hypertension and potentially fatal medical events like heart attacks and strokes. During the past 12 months, public health experts and pediatricians have grown concerned about the potential impacts of serving students less healthy lunches. To report this story, I talked to well over a dozen pediatricians and epidemiologists who were all starting to tell me the same story, which is that they are all seeing early signs of childhood weight gain during the pandemic. They all concede that we don't have the hard data yet because that data typically isn't made available for at least a year or so, even under normal conditions. That's how we track childhood obesity rates. We're usually one year or so behind. But the pandemic has also complicated that because the public health researchers who work for the government, who typically trace and track childhood weights, aren't able to go into the field and they aren't able to take those measurements and collect that data. So this story was based on many anecdotes. It's something that everyone expects will be confirmed by data when it's eventually made available next year or in 2022. As dire as this situation sounds, it's not a new problem. And that's a hallmark of the summer. Only one in six kids who receive those healthy school lunches that I was talking about end up receiving free or reduced price school lunch during the summer, even though they're eligible for them. Kids also get less exercise over the summer. There's no P.E. class and more time is spent looking at screens. Sounding similar to remote learning, another parallel lies in the food cafeterias are serving. The other change that the uh, USDA made was to make it easier for schools to switch from the National School Lunch Program, which is this rigorous, healthy program that was reformed during the Obama era, to the Summer Food Service Program. So this is another child nutrition program that's mostly designed you know, as the name says, for summer. That means camps, churches, daycares, a lot of places that don't have kitchens or cafeteria staff who can make food from scratch. But they are unhealthier. They allow for full-fat flavored milk, which means more sugar. Sandwich breads and breakfast muffins can be made with more enriched flour, so those whole grains aren't written into the law in the same way. There are no limits on the amount of calories or sodium or saturated fat, and that's sort of a logistical thing. And vegetables aren't required at all, period, during the summer. You can have fruits instead, or you can have juice. And the way it was explained to me is that summer is designed as a short-term thing, not for kids to be depending on it for over a year. 
Concerns about childhood nutrition and rising rates of obesity typically arise every year, like clockwork, as students leave their classrooms behind for summer vacation. So why hasn't this pattern been disrupted? After a short break, we'll dive into a long-standing debate surrounding the quality, accessibility, and cost of school meals. We'll also discuss possible solutions. Restaurant owners know it can be almost impossible to keep everything up to date. Even making adjustments to the menu can become difficult to keep up with. That's why I'm so happy to introduce Pop Menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. Pop Menu is the full digital solution for independent restaurant owners, starting with a dynamic, interactive menu that hooks your customers from the start and a mobile-friendly website design. This year, I've become a big user of contactless delivery. I love when I can order directly from the restaurant rather than using a third-party app because that means more support goes to the restaurant. If you're relying on third-party apps, switch to Pop Menu and for a limited time only, get $100 off your first month. Plus, you lock in on one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com hrn. My name is Paul Willis. I'm a fifth-generation hog farmer, and I owned and operated the Willis Free Range Pig Farm for over 41 years. I've dedicated my life to revitalizing sustainable hog farming methods in the Midwest and moving farms away from the common industrial practices. In 1998, I established the Nyman Ranch Pork Company. I'm proud to say Nyman Ranch has since grown into a network of over 740 independent family farmers and ranchers today. At Nyman Ranch, our animals are raised with care. We believe that the quality of an animal's life impacts the quality of the meat. Our high standards were developed with the help of animal welfare expert Dr. Temple Grandin and are among the strictest in the industry. All of our animals live outdoors or in deeply bedded pens and they're never given antibiotics or added hormones ever and are only fed a high-quality, 100% vegetarian diet. Whether they're raising hogs, cattle, or lamb, Nyman Ranch farmers and ranchers share our commitment to traditional farming. Raising livestock in the way our parents and grandparents did and supporting our rural communities. We share a common belief that humane and sustainable methods produce the best possible flavor. Learn more about our work at Nyman Ranch at nymanranch.com. Welcome back to the Big Food Question. The USDA's pandemic-era waivers have reignited deep-running tensions among academics, cafeteria workers, parents, and pediatricians about the food served for school lunch. The debate can be boiled down to arguments about the value of calories versus nutrition. I spoke to a University of Illinois economist who studies food insecurity, who has been a critic of these Obama-era school lunch reforms, because he is of the opinion, and well, I should clarify, he would probably say it's he's of the learned research, not opinion, that the reforms have hurt low-income children because it limits the amount of calories that are available to them. 
And any moves that the agriculture department can make to move away from those policies that limited calorie intake for kids, he thinks that's a good thing. This point of view is aligned with the School Nutrition Association, a trade group representing cafeteria workers and other school nutrition staff. Many people have complained that the same nutrition standards that have been linked to positive health outcomes are too too much. They're, they're too ornery. They're, they, they ask too much of schools to spend more money, and, and they say that kids don't like them. The School Nutrition Association likes to say that a school meal is only healthy if kids are eating it. And what they mean by that is that if you're serving food that's not tasty, we'll say, you know, not as salty, not as sugary, maybe kids aren't going to go for it. And if kids don't go for it, they don't eat and schools don't get reimbursed for that meal that they get served. So there's a kind of perverse disincentive there. The argument against that way of thinking is that part of what makes school nutrition staff so important is that they're able to kind of train kids to eat these foods that they may not like. A 2019 study by the USDA examining the effects of the Obama-era Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act revealed that the amount of waste left on lunch trays was unchanged after the updated nutrition standards were implemented. The type of food going to waste was also unchanged by this policy. Before and after the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, vegetables remained the largest source of waste on student plates. Instead of decreasing the amount of vegetables served, some believe this issue can be solved through education and a little creativity. One of the school nutrition consultants who I interviewed for the story works in Ohio. And she was telling me about some of the things that the school districts she works with have started to put in these take-home boxes or these take-home bags for kids. Pop-Tarts, Uncrustables, Pillsbury cinnamon rolls. These are not things that she is very eager or happy to see kids eating because for years she's been working with schools to get them to offer salad bars stocked with fresh produce and different dressings and, and training kids to eat these vegetables that they don't like by sneaking them into uh, a cowboy corn salsa, she called them. This debate is framed around cost and calories, as well as personal taste and plate waste. It's complicated. But underlying arguments that students are not best served by rigorously regulated meals are some more easily distilled messages about nutrition and about privilege. Now, I'm not a nutritionist, I don't want to weigh in necessarily on the issue of a good calorie versus a bad calorie. But the fact is, there are some ethical questions about saying to school children, you should not have to eat as healthy as the government is recommending. The government has set up these national health and diet standards. You do not have to meet those standards because it makes it harder for you to eat, period. I think the argument, essentially, is quantity over quality. Perhaps the school lunch system requires not only policy reforms, but a paradigm shift about what is viewed as a human right versus a privilege. Sam came to his own realization about this as he was reporting the story for The Counter. I ended up speaking to 
a mother of three in the Fresno, California area about her experience with school lunches. And she told me about how disappointed she was that during this time of great economic, unprecedented stress and economic distress, that she wasn't able to count on schools to keep providing the healthy meals that she had expected. Before the pandemic, her kids used to eat hot meals in the cafeteria where they might eat burritos or rice bowls or chicken and potatoes. But during the pandemic, she went to go pick up lunches for them at a local middle school and told me she was really surprised by what was in these brown bags. Cookies, juice boxes, canned fruit, beef jerky, frozen enchiladas that she microwaved and found them runny and gross. And there was part of me that thought, well, shouldn't you as a parent be grateful for any free food at a time of great hunger? But I learned while I was reporting, and this gets back to this issue of quality versus quantity, that it's not enough just to give people something to eat and say, we're helping solve hunger. People deserve healthy food, and people deserve healthy food during a public health crisis because it's more important than ever to be doing all we can to stay healthy. So it's not a question of you should be grateful that there's free food. It's more of an issue that there are needy people who depend on this nutritional safety net and it's letting them down and it's a shame. So what will come of school lunch? Will Trump-era rollbacks remain in place? Or will advocates achieve greater investment in school cafeterias? One thing that a few researchers I've talked to would just be to return to normal at a minimum. During the pandemic, it's not just that the Trump administration issued waivers that freed schools from nutrition guidelines. It also permanently overturned restrictions on sodium and fat content in milk and loosened whole grain requirements in school lunches. There is some expectation that Tom Vilsack, the new agriculture secretary, who was also the agriculture secretary who promulgated these changes, would want to protect his legacy and will undo the Trump rollbacks and restore the Obama era school nutrition standards. But we don't know for sure that's going to happen. The other thing that someone I spoke to mentioned was that we could just start investing in school kitchens. I mentioned a few minutes ago that school nutrition budgets are separate from the rest of budgets at schools. So they need their own attention. They need their own support. And as a form of economic stimulus, the federal government could give money to schools to buy better kitchen equipment, more walk-in refrigerators, more freezers, more kitchen supplies, more service equipment, all the stuff that cafeteria workers need to cook more fresh food, more scratch-cooked food, healthier food that's not dependent on salt and other preservatives, let's say. COVID-19 put school lunch in flux. As cafeteria trays were reconceptualized as brown bags and meal boxes. In the face of a crisis, USDA waivers abandoned precedent in favor of necessity, granting more students than ever access to free meals, while also lowering the standards required to prepare them. A year later, the state of emergency has become a new normal. And yet, the fate of school lunch 
from food to funding, remains up in the air. Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode to Sam Block. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Kat Johnson, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, and Luke Griffin. This episode's producer was me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer for this episode was Armin Spengen. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by a Humanities New York CARES grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.